Good morning. My name is Marcia, and I'll be here for this month of October and uh, the first week of November, for those of you that will be staying on. This morning's reflection is about spiritual urgency, Samvega in Pali. So why do we practice? Why do you practice? What are the seeds that brought you or bring you to spiritual practice? What are the seeds that brought you to a retreat such as this? So beginning our reflection this morning with a few questions, some of which have probably appeared in your mind and heart at some point along the way of your practice. These questions that humans have felt and asked forever and ever, regardless of culture, regardless of history, these murmurings of the heart, the deep questionings and yearnings that have been going on in us as long as there have been human beings. What is life about? What is death? Its significance, its meaning. Can I be happy? Can I be at ease in this life? What is it that I need to be really, truly happy and at ease in this life? Can I or how can I live gracefully? peacefully in this life with all of the challenges and difficulties in this changing world, in this changing country, with all of the challenges within me and all around me, right here and now in this very life. What is it that brings me to practice? And again, Why am I here in this retreat right now? I think it's important to recognize that our practice isn't about getting caught up in mulling or kind of stewing over these questions. But rather these questions can be taken in as a motivating force and as an inspiration towards connecting to and dropping more and more deeply into our practice. 
So this morning's reflection about an urgency to awaken, and as I mentioned, the Pali term is samvega. And this is often translated as spiritual urgency, although actually it's a term that's somewhat difficult to render into English because it includes quite a number of different mind states. In the classical Buddhist texts, the force of energy of samvega is spoken about as one being moved or one being stirred to a sense of urgency to practice. And then the classical texts go on to say that samvega is also about one being moved to a sense of urgency within practice itself by what should move one and then followed by the systematic effort of one so moved. So this urgency, this samvega, an urgency to practice and an urgency to awaken. It's important, actually, to note at this point that spiritual urgency is an energy that's not at all fraught with a tense or frantic or obsessive quality. Very important. But rather, it's a quality of heart, a quality of mind that very often comes out of some degree of understanding the natural laws, understanding the way of things, some degree of understanding how it is. A friend of mine told me that at some Zen retreats, every evening at the end of the evening's group meditation, a student strongly strikes the Han a thick piece of wood that's hanging by a rope. Hit with a mallet, the han makes a very sharp, piercing sound. And this is accompanied by chanting this reminder. Great is the matter of birth and death. Quickly passing, gone, gone. Awake, each one, awake. Don't waste this life. This practice can be a reminder for us that along with the potential spaciousness and timelessness of our meditation practice, there is an urgency, an immediacy, we could say, to be present, to be fully present. I was told that a group of nurses who work at the bedside of critically ill and dying people said this. They said, we discovered that what is most important in healing is nothing that we say or do, but the quality of our presence. And I think it's Fair to say that many of us, at times, we get so caught up in a kind of striving practice that we forget what's most important. 
to be able to open our heart and mind to be present with life as it's appearing and disappearing, blossoming and wilting, moment by moment. We can forget that our practice is not just to help us solve our problems, but to really enter deeply into the ineffable mystery of life and death. So this morning I'd like to share a bit of a story with you that's maybe a somewhat unlikely one from the contemporary writer Annie Dillard. And it's a story that I've found to be very, very inspiring and that invoked a spiritual urgency in me the first time that I read it, many years ago now. And it continues to move me every time that I read it. So these are a few excerpts from a chapter called Living Like Weasels from Annie Dillard's book, Teaching a Stone to Talk. Last week I startled a weasel who startled me and we exchanged a long glance. Weasel, I'd never seen one wild before. He was ten inches long, thick as a curve, a muscled ribbon, brown as fruit wood, soft furred, alert. His face was fierce, small, and pointed as a lizard's. He would have made a good arrowhead. There was just a dot of chin, maybe two brown hairs worth, and then the pure white fur began that spread down his underside. He had two black eyes I didn't see any more than you see a window. The weasel was stunned into stillness as he was emerging from beneath an enormous, shaggy, wild rose bush four feet away. I was stunned into stillness, twisted backward on the tree trunk. Our eyes locked, and someone threw away the key. Our look was as if two lovers or deadly enemies met unexpectedly on an overgrown path when each had been thinking of something else. A clearing blow to the gut. It was also a bright blow to the brain or a sudden beating of brains with all the charge and intimate grate of rubbed balloons. It emptied our lungs, it filled the forest, moved the fields, and drained the pond. The world dismantled and tumbled into that black hole of eyes. He disappeared. This was only last week, and I already don't remember what shattered the enchantment. I think I blinked. I think I retrieved my brain from the weasel's brain and tried to memorize what I was seeing. And the weasel felt the yank of separation. I waited motionless, my mind suddenly full of data and my spirit with pleading. But he didn't return. I tell you, I've been in that weasel's brain for 60 seconds. And he was in mine. 
Brains are private places, muttering through unique and secret tapes. But the weasel and I both plugged into another tape simultaneously for a sweet, shocking time. Can I help it if it was a blank? I would like to learn or remember how to live. I don't think I can learn from a wild animal how to live in particular, but I might learn something of the purity of living in the physical senses and the dignity of living without bias or motive. The weasel lives in necessity, and we live in choice, hating necessity, and dying at last ignobly in its talons. I would like to live as I should, and I suspect that for me the way is like the weasel's, open to time and death, painlessly, noticing everything, remembering nothing, choosing the given with a fierce and pointed will. I remember muteness, as a prolonged and giddy fast where every moment is a feast of utterance received. Time and events are merely poured, unremarked and ingested directly, like blood pulsed into my gut through a jugular vein. We can live any way we want. People take vows of poverty, of chastity, and obedience, and even silence, by choice. The thing is to stalk your calling in a certain skilled and supple way, to locate the most tender and live spot, and plug into that pulse. This is yielding, not fighting. A weasel doesn't attack anything. A weasel lives as it's meant to, yielding at every moment to the perfect freedom of single necessity. I think it would be well and proper and obedient and pure to grasp your one necessity and not let it go, to dangle from it limp wherever it takes you, And then even death, where you're going no matter how you live, cannot you part. Seize it and let it seize you up aloft even, till your eyes burn out and drop. Let your musky flesh fall off in shreds and let your very bones unhinge and scatter over fields and woods, lightly, thoughtlessly, from any height at all, from as high as eagles. I would like to learn or remember how to live. I would like to live as I should, and I suspect that for me the way is like the weasels, open to time and death, painlessly, Noticing everything, remembering nothing, choosing the given with a fierce 
and pointed will. And in closing our reflection this morning, we come back around to the opening questions that I offered. As the poet Mary Oliver, in her own way, poses them in her poem called The Summer Day. Who made the world? Who made the swan and the black bear? Who made the grasshopper? This grasshopper, I mean, the one who has flung herself out of the grass, the one who is eating sugar out of my hand, who is moving her jaws back and forth instead of up and down, who is gazing around with her enormous and complicated eyes. Now she lifts her pale forearms and thoroughly washes her face. Now she snaps her wings open and floats away. I don't know exactly what a prayer is. I do know how to pay attention, how to fall down into the grass, how to kneel down in the grass, how to be idle and blessed, how to stroll through the fields, which is what I've been doing all day. Tell me, what else should I have done? Doesn't everything die at last and too soon? Tell me, what is it you plan to do with your one wild and precious life.